Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 28. I know the great majority of us are used to reading um, these verses during Christmas. They're sort of like the prelude to the Christmas story. But um, this story is also, I think, so important because it's a prelude to the Holy Spirit's work in the life of Christ. And the reason why I I decided to start here as we start this new series of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ is because I want us to seriously consider how the Holy Spirit worked in the life of Jesus. Because if Jesus Christ needed the power of the Holy Spirit, even from birth, how much more do we? How much more do we? And so what I want to do is um, I'm going to start here. And, and today, I just, I guess, as I was thinking, what's, what's the purpose of the sermon today? Well, the purpose of the sermon today is to cultivate in your heart a sincere need for the Holy Spirit in your life. Like, you know, every time we talk about the Holy Spirit in the church, it's always, you know, it's one of those topics that just sounds kind of weird for our modern ears because it's not something we really think about. Like, you know, as I thought about it and and as, as I've been, like, preparing for this sermon, it dawned on me that very few mornings do I wake up and I actually say, Holy Spirit, I need your power now. Right? Like very, very little I say that. But what I, wanna, what I hope to show you today is how much you and I desperately need the power of the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life. That's, that's my goal and my plan today. And then after today, after we create this need and we see it as a need, then I want to look at the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus Christ and see how that applies to our life. So let's begin with this text, Luke chapter 1, and I actually want to begin at verse number 26. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the son of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. 
And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. All flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be preached unto you. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that your word is true. And every single part of your word is designed for our good and your glory. So now, Holy Spirit, come. Give us all ears to hear and eyes to see. Empower us to see your truth and empower us to live it out each and every day. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen and amen. Ian Bounds uh, was an American lawyer and a pastor and an author. And he's known for writing upwards to about 11 books on prayer. And in one of these books called The Power of Prayer, Ian Bounds tells the story of John Fletcher. And John Fletcher was a pastor who had, according to Ian Bounds, a profound desire for the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. And Ian Bounds said that John Fletcher would get up in the morning and he had a chair, that was his prayer chair, and he would go and he would sit in his prayer chair and he would not leave until he sensed the power of God on his life. And, and Ian Bounds, sometimes he would sit there for an hour. Sometimes he'll sit there for two hours. Sometimes he sat there for four hours. Ian Bounds says even he would sit there almost the entire day because he did not want to leave his seat until he sensed the power of God on his life. Now, pause for a moment and think how weird that must have been for Mrs. Fletcher. Because, you know, like, there are schedules to be had. Like, you know, the children need tending to. There's, there's things to be done in the day. And here, here's, here's Ian Bound saying that Fletcher just would not leave until he had the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I have to tell you, I, I'm not sure that would work out quite the same way in the Lewis household. Like, I have four children. I need to, I, you know, I need to wake up in the morning. I need the Holy Spirit within a 30-minute window. And then I need to get up, and I need to, like, start brushing teeth and fixing breakfast and getting kids to school. Like, like that's just, like, I, when I think about that, that just seems eccentric, right? We look at that and say, oh, you know, that's kind of eccentric. Who, who would do that, Right? Can you imagine if I came in here today and as Albert like, was praying and he left the stage and I just stayed seated in my seat and then everyone's looking at me as pastor going to get up and preach and I'm just sitting there because I don't want to leave unless I feel or sense the power of God on my life before I step in the pulpit? Now, now hear me. Um, Ian Bounds goes on to say that it is the case that Fletcher could have gotten up and went about his day. In the same way, I could just get up and preach a sermon. But, but Ian Bounds said that Fletcher understood 
that the Christian life is not the Christian life without the power of the Holy Spirit. And Ian Bounds said that preaching isn't preaching unless it has the power of the Holy Spirit on it. And the point that Ian Bounds said of Fletcher is like Fred Fletcher had this profound sense of his need for the power of the Holy Spirit to the point that he would not leave his prayer chair until he felt that the Lord had done this work in his heart and in his mind. I've often felt that today, currently, in, in evangelical circles, we don't have that same sense And in many ways, we don't have that same desire for the Holy Spirit's power on our life. And, like, listen, I'm not saying this to be critical. I'm just saying this as a fact. Like, you know, when I get, when I get, uh, every so often as a pastor, I get these, this information, these informations, like, I get all these information about church growth, and I get all this information about how to be a better Christian, and how, and how to live the Christian life, and as I look through these things, because I'm constantly trying to think, okay, what is it that we're doing here? And as I go through them, do you know the one thing I see absent in them consistently? Any mention of the power of the Holy Spirit on our lives. It's just not there. Writing in the mid part of the 20th century, pastor, American pastor, um, A.W. Tozer said this. And he said this of the American church. He says, we may as well face it. The whole level of spirituality among us is low. We have measured ourselves by ourselves until the incentive to seek higher plateaus in the things of the Spirit is all but gone. We have imitated the world, sought popular favor, manufactured delights to substitute for the joy of the Lord and produce a cheap and synthetic power to substitute for the power of the Holy Ghost. You know, when we hear a story like Fletcher and we, we think about that, we think about that in our minds and say, man, that's, that's a little eccentric. And honestly, that sounds kind of nutty. Right? That he would stay there almost, almost to the point of an entire day until he felt the sense of God on his life, this power of the Holy Spirit. But let me submit to you that Fletcher wasn't being nutty. He was actually being biblical. Because when you read passages like Ephesians 5, 16, where it says, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is access, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when you read passages like Galatians 5 that encourages us to walk in the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, and to live by the Spirit, there's nothing nutty about what uh, Fletcher was doing. It was eminently biblical. In preparation for this sermon series, I, I, I took a concordance and I took my Bible and I looked at every single passage in the Bible on the Holy Spirit. And by the way, I encourage you to do the same. Just take your Bible, take a concordance, and just work through every single passage of, in the Bible of the Holy Spirit. And one of the things I walked away with after I did this is I realized, and it just struck me about our, God's people dependency upon the Holy Spirit, this profound dependency upon the Holy Spirit to just do the work of 
the Christian life. That we need the Spirit to give us wisdom and strength and artistry and health and boldness. Over and over again, we see that the Christian life is a life dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we come to this text, I think this text gives us several reasons why you and I need the Holy Spirit and why we must depend on the Holy Spirit. And there's three. I'm going to give you just three. There's many more, but I'm just going to give you three. The first reason that we need the Holy Spirit in our lives is just to live the ordinary Christian life. The second is to live the extraordinary Christian life. And the third is to live the transformed Christian life. The ordinary Christian life, the extraordinary Christian life, and the transformed Christian life. First of all, notice just, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to, need, to live the ordinary Christian life. Notice with me in verse 26 and 27. It says, In the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Mary, sorry, whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Like these verses just record ordinary simple things about Mary's life. That Mary was just going about living the Christian life. It doesn't say that Mary was a prophetess. It doesn't say that she held some big position. It just said that Mary was a virgin in Galilee going about her daily life. And the holy and this angel appeared to her. Listen to what, what one Bible scholar said that I thought was so amazing. He said, young, um, Mary was a young peasant woman who lived in a despised provincial town of Nazareth. She was godly and virtuous. She did ordinary things, going about her everyday business when she was met by an angel. And here's what the commentator went on to say. Before the Spirit of God worked in Mary's life to do extraordinary things, the Spirit had been working in her life to do the ordinary, everyday things. Don't miss the power behind that passage. Don't miss the power behind those words. We live the majority of our lives doing everyday, ordinary things. This past week, I, my routine was down-packed. I got up, I had my devotions, I got, helped got my kids ready, I drove them to school, I went to work, I went home from work, I ate, I might have disciplined my children, I might have paid bills, but this is the normal, everyday Christian life, right? We look at this and we say, there's nothing spectacular about this. But I would disagree. The spectacular aspect of this is that we need the power of God just to do the everyday, ordinary things. I remember um, listening to an uh, Axe John, uh, Axe, uh, Pastor John, John Piper episode, and this lady wrote in, and she said, Pastor John, I, I can't do my, my worship. I can't, like, have worship because I'm a mom, I'm home, I have all these kids, and, and it's just so difficult for me to concentrate. I just feel like my life doesn't, doesn't equip me to have the power of the Holy Spirit on it. And I remember Pastor John telling her that, that oh, it, here's what you need to do, that the next time you're bathing your children, just pray with them. And then the next time that, that you have to like change their diaper, begin to sing a hymn to them. 
And he was encouraging her that in the midst of just living the ordinary Christian life, why don't you just rest in the power of the Holy Spirit and the means by which the Holy Spirit gives us to strengthen us? And what are those means? They're the ordinary means of grace. They're what you and I are doing now, hearing the preaching of the word, coming to church, hearing the songs uh, sung. These are the ordinary means of grace that you and I need to live the ordinary Christian life. This is the means by which the Holy Spirit uses for us. You might say, well, Pastor Dennis, how does the Holy Spirit use these things to strengthen us? How does the Holy Spirit use these things to encourage us? Let me give you an illustration. I had a professor in college. Every time he would pass out a test, um, he would say, hey, you, you all have 40 minutes to take this test. And by the way, the, the test always seemed like a 50-minute test, right? It always seemed longer than the time that he was allotting us. Well, after we had taken this test, at the very end, he would tell us to hurry up, you know? And one of the ways that he would tell us to hurry up, he would always say, um, class, the Holy Spirit does not work ex nihilio anymore. And, and at first, I did not understand what he was saying until one day it just finally dawned on me. And I laughed. And everyone in the class was like, what is he doing? Like, that's weird. Why, why are you laughing? And, and here's, what, here's what my professor was saying. He was saying that if we didn't study, if we didn't put in the work to study, the Holy Spirit was not going to bring those things to mind on the test, right? That the Holy Spirit no longer works ex nihilio. Like, we, we can't go into the test not studying anything and expect the Holy Spirit to just work and bring those things to mind. Even though some of us think that that's how things work, right? But here's the point. Unless you and I are feeding off the ordinary means of grace unless we're praying, unless we're singing the hymns of faith, unless we're gathering for worship, the Holy Spirit cannot work in our lives to bring about this, these ordinary, powerful moments. And that's the point of this text, that as Mary was going about her ordinary life, doing the ordinary things, the power of the Holy Spirit was already on her. She was a godly young lady. She had done all the things that the law had required from her. The power of the Holy Spirit had worked in her life so profoundly that now she was in a place for the extraordinary. And the same thing is true for us. We need the power of the Holy Spirit just to do the everyday ordinary things in life. You and I need the power of the Holy Spirit to love our spouses well, to do our jobs well, to be patient and loving and kind. That's what this text is reminding us, that in the everyday, ordinary things, you and I need to draw from the power of the Spirit. Notice the second thing. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to live the extraordinary life. Look at verse 28 down to verse number 23. We have this fascinating um, encounter between Mary and the angel. The angel comes to her, and, she's, and, and the angel says, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And Mary was rightly troubled. Why? Because angels just don't appear to people on, a, on an everyday basis. This wasn't like normal. 
Now, everybody, everybody says, oh, you know, back then, um, of course they believed in angels, and of course they believed in the supernatural. Mary's reaction demonstrated that this wasn't a normal occurrence. She was troubled. She wanted to know and discern what was going on here. Then in verse number 30, notice what the angel, look, notice the extraordinary thing that the angel tells her. He says, look, don't be afraid. You have found favor with God. How did she find favor with God? By living the ordinary Christian life underneath the power of God. And then verse 31, look at all the things that the angel said there. He said, Mary, you will conceive, you will bear a child, and you will name him Jesus. Then he goes on to say that God will give him a throne of David in verse number 32. And as a consequence, this promised son will reign forever, verse number 33. Now, in a nutshell, what is the angel telling Mary here? Here's what the angel is telling Mary. In order for Jesus to accomplish his mission on earth, there has to be a partnership between you and God. There has to be this partnership between you and God. Now, here's what's remarkable to me. Mary, as a godly Jewish young lady, knew the prophecies in Genesis 16. She knew the prophecy in Isaiah 7. She knew the prophecy in Genesis 3. She knew that the Messiah would come, and now, now she gets to participate with that. And by the way, Mary didn't have a class on how to be the God-bearer, right? There, there wasn't a class on that. Mary, there was no way to prepare Mary for what was about to happen to her. You know, without fail, every so often as I look on the internet, a seminarian will write an article, and the headline would be, things that I wish they taught me in seminary. And here's the irony of of most of these posts. Even if you took a class on the thing that you're saying you're not prepared for, you wouldn't be prepared for like, I always joke around with people when they ask me, like, how, is, how are things going here at the church? Like, my friends outside, like, like, how are things going, Pastor? You came in during a pandemic. And I was like, yeah, man, I wish I had taken how to make it through a pandemic 101. But they didn't have a class for that in seminary. And can I also say that even if they had a class for that in seminary, I still wouldn't have been prepared for that. Why? Because the power of the Holy Spirit comes on us in extraordinary times to help us through extraordinary times. There's a story recorded of Corey Tin Boom where she said that she worried, as a young lady, she worried that she wouldn't have the strength to be a martyr for Christ. She worried about that. And so um, she went to her father and listened to the dialogue between her, um, Corey Ten Boom and her father. Um, she tells the story to her father. She's like, Father, um, I, I really am worried that if persecution were to come, I wouldn't have enough strength to be a martyr for Christ. And her father responded to her in this way. Corey, he began gently, When you and I go to Amsterdam, when do I give you your ticket? She thought about it and considered it. She says, why? Just before we get on the train. To which her father said, exactly. And our wise father in heaven knows 
when we're going to need things too. Don't run ahead of him. In the moment that you will need that strength to overcome persecution, your Lord will give it to you. And it is certainly the case that when Hitler and Nazi Germany began their reign of terror, and Corrie ten Boom was used by God to protect many Jews, and she was captured and suffered persecution, the Lord gave her the strength in that moment to endure that persecution. By the way, Christian, have you not felt the sustaining power of God during these times? Do, do we in the church honestly think that we were able or are able to preserve ourselves during these times just on manpower? Think back with me over the past three to four months how many times you felt disillusioned and powerless and frustrated and angry and broken down by what's going on around us. Do you not see where we as the church, unless we have the power of the Holy Spirit on us, will be crushed by the weight of our circumstances? This is what this passage is saying. Of course, Mary, in verse number 34, asks a very logical question when she is told about all the wonderful things that God was going to do to her. In verse number 34, she says, how will this be since I am a virgin? Like, Mary is acknowledging there is no way this can happen. There is no way I can make this happen. And again, rightly so, because virgins don't go around having babies. What God is asking her to do is eminently extraordinary. But the angel told her, like, do not worry because that's why the power of the Holy Spirit is present so that you and I can be sustained by it. And as the illustration with Corey Ten Boom lets us know, it's only in those moments, it's only in those extraordinary moments that the Holy Spirit comes in a very extraordinary way. And let me say this, I wish someone had told me this early on in my Christian life. Because when I read through the Bible, I, I honestly thought that unless I was speaking in tongues, and unless I was raising people from the dead, and unless I was like healing the blind, I didn't have the power of the Holy Spirit on me. But that's absolute nonsense. Remember, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. His role is our helper. That's what he does. And if you and I don't draw from this help, even in ordinary times or in extraordinary times, we will not have the power to live the Christian life. The last thing I want to show you is not only do we need the power of the Holy Spirit for ordinary times, not only do we need it for extraordinary times, but we also need it to live the transformed life. Notice with me in verse number 34. The angel is answering to Mary, how, how will these things be? He's answering this question. And, and the question that he answers impacts both her and Jesus. It says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. 
the Son of God. Now, notice in this passage how the Bible says that, or the angel says that, the Holy Spirit will transform Mary's life by overcoming her, by acting upon her. And in doing so, she'll be able to do this extraordinary thing. But the passage also tells us how Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, will be able to live a transformed life, and by virtue of that, transformed our own life. Notice what he says. He says, the Holy Spirit will come, he will overshadow you, and this child will be born. Now, if you study birth narratives in the Bible, you'll see that birth narratives in the Bible are incredibly extraordinary. It's usually a woman who's barren, and then all of a sudden the Lord opens up her womb, and she has a child. But the difference in this passage is this, that Mary isn't barren. She's never been with a man. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit came upon her and by virtue of that made a new life in her. Now look, I, I don't know what Jesus' chromosomal makeup was. Like, I don't know if like 23% was human and 23% was divine. I don't think we have to go there, actually. The point of the narrative is this, that Jesus' birth um, is the culmination of redemptive history as a whole. That in Jesus' life, we see being born out what Paul said in Galatians 4 and 4, verse 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And here's the point that Paul, that I think Paul is making. The birth of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit makes it possible for you and I to be reborn in the Spirit. That's the basis of this passage. That when we see the Holy Spirit working through Mary, the bypass, the sin of Adam, so that Christ can be born of man, fully man, by the way, the way God intended it, sinless, so that he might experience the blessing of humanity in its fullness. The fact that Christ never experienced um, untainted relationship with the Father, that he never experienced what it's like to be, self, um, to be uh, selfish, or he never experienced what it's like to have impure motive, or he never experienced what it's like to be, without pri uh, to be with pride and insecurities. That Christ, as he is born into the world, by the power of God, is more fully human than you and I are. And that's why you and I, unlike Christ, experience sin. But what is the remedy of that? Paul gives the remedy in Romans chapter 12, and I just want to read this in closing. As Paul thinks about the power of the Holy Spirit, and he thinks about how that implies to our life, if you go to Romans 12, Paul says this, I'm sorry, normally I have this marked in my Bible, but here's what Paul says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. Do not be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you might discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Beloved, in order for us to do this, in order for us to accomplish this, we must have the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's through Christ, through Christ's miraculous birth, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I now have the power within us to live this transformed life. Don't waste it. Ask the Holy Spirit each and every day to give you that power that you might live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the Holy Spirit, our helper. Holy Spirit, help us as your people to desire your help in every aspect of our life. Be with us. Give us the strength that we need. And bless us now, your people, in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.